Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, you're listening to the Squiggly Careers podcast, a weekly show where we talk about the ups and downs of careers and help you to have that little bit more control over your future at work. I'm Helen Tupper, and today, instead of Sarah, my normal co-host, I'm going to be talking to psychologist and author Dr. Thomas Chamorro Pramusic about the topic of hybrid work, so a bit of a hot topic at the moment. I've followed Thomas's work for a really long time. It's always been so relevant to what we do at Amazing If, and I really like his challenging approach, which I think comes across in the titles of his multiple TED Talks, with things like uh, The Power of Negative Thinking, that's the title of one of them. The other one, Why We Should Be More Sexist, and my recent favourite, Why So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders. Uh, He has a really interesting, challenging approach that I'm always ready to hear more about. And despite that, in this conversation, he is, in his own words, a bit more practical than cynical. And we touch on how teams can co-create a new set of rules for work, how the role of managers needs to evolve, and also how to overcome a new version and a new risk, really, of progression by presenteeism. The idea that the people that come to the office are the people that are going to succeed at work, which is obviously not what we want to be the future. So there's lots to think on in this discussion. I personally could talk to and listen to Thomas for hours, but we have condensed this conversation into about 30 minutes for you instead. As ever, you can download the pod sheet to put the insights into action and join Pod Plus, which is our live learning session that Sarah is going to be running this week as I am on holiday when this episode comes out. And that's great if you want to explore and discuss the episode with a community of like-minded learners. It's a super positive start to a Thursday. All the links for the pod sheet and the pod notes and the Pod Plus, all of it, it's all in the show notes. And you can always email us at Helen and Sarah at squigglycareers.com if you can't find things. So let's get started. Tomas, welcome to the Squiggly Careers podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. And before we maybe dive into some of the specific considerations of hybrid working, I thought it might be useful to start at a higher level and get your perspective on what do you think is the bigger opportunity of getting hybrid working right people organizations the bigger perspective of doing this right what what do you think that is well if i had to pick one it would be the opportunity but also the challenge in in that sense of actually learning to pay attention to what people contribute to their team job organization you know so basically to move beyond 
what where most people are today, which is a culture of presentism, where even if they had some flexibility before, before we use the word hybrid, you know, you got brownie points for being in the right place at the right time and saying the right thing to the right person. I think that really needs to stop. There is no reason for that. And true freedom and flexibility will come only when it doesn't matter where you are for how your work is evaluated, you know? And where if people want to see you, that's great. If it contributes to the actual performance and the outcome, that's fine. You decide and you need to probably have some guidance as to where you should be when. But the most important opportunity, I think, is to move beyond a culture of presentism and start to learn what people are actually contributing to their organization. And that's actually the thing I'm also simultaneously somewhat skeptical and cynical about because I don't know if most organizations are ready to make that switch because it's really difficult and we could have done it before. I agree. I feel like the pandemic has accelerated this conversation and enabled it in some ways because it forced it. So some of those barriers that people put up before, we've now sort of blocked down and said, well, actually, we can work as a team remotely. But it could have happened before and it could have happened sooner. What do you think are some of the reasons that it hasn't? Uh, Well, you know, I think I'm going to use this word in a positive sense, even though it's difficult to interpret it that way. But I think just laziness or if you like efficiencies, you know, I mean, our brains and our minds and our intelligence evolve through thousands of years to optimize for laziness. When something is easy, you don't want to change it. And even though the world of work has changed dramatically, even in the last 30 or 40 years, which is an eye blink in our long evolutionary history, we haven't kept up with it, you know? We still think in every instance of kind of organizational life, work or management, we still think that we can trust our instincts and that when we see something, we know what's going on. So if I were interviewing you for a job now, I would think or trick myself into thinking, ah, yeah, I know that you're smart, that you're creative, that you're curious, and all of those things are very hard to actually infer. Equally, it's very hard today, especially for the most skilled and most sought-after, well-paid professions or jobs, it's very hard to actually know whether someone is doing a good job or not, you know? So because it's very difficult and I would have to actually put in place a complicated system, maybe with the help of a professional and understand output and actually the connection between your behavior and that output, we just default to total laziness and say, well, if you're in and you're pretending to work and you seem active and you seem talkative in meetings and all of that, then I'm going to assume that you're engaged and you're productive and you like me, so I'm going to give you a good performance review. And you see, and we know that that punishes this introverts, it punishes people who are not busy showing off, but busy working. And of course, it punishes women compared to men. Men are much better at self-promoting and mansplaining. You know, we don't have womansplaining as a term, and there's a reason for that, which is that most women are not busy mansplaining. And my thoughts are, it'd be interesting to see whether you agree, that I think people power is high right now because there's a lot of people that are saying, well, I've been able to design my work around myself for the last 12 months and my children, my family and all those kinds of things. And I don't have to commute and do that kind of presenteeism in the office. And I don't intend to go back. And I feel like the people power in having that conversation about what they want their future of work to look like is higher than it's ever been. Do you see that too? I think that's probably the biggest evolution of the world of work. And you have to really think about 
50 years chunks or 100 years chunks, you know. 100 years ago, you and I would have worked in assembly lines and factories in the UK or the US, even in industrialized and advanced rich countries, the richest countries in the world. And we wouldn't have for a minute, for a single day of our lives, come back home and say, when our partners or our family members ask us, how was your day today? We would have said, well, you know, today I didn't experience a sense of calling or purpose. I was just moving objects from one place to the other. And that was the norm, you know, and everything to do with the positive and enjoyable aspects of life was confined to the pub, cafes, bar or hobbies or activities, you know, sports, church, reading, arts, television or radio, because I think television was not invented. So I think now we definitely, you fast forward 100 years, which is still very short in the grand scheme of things. A lot of people want meaning and purpose, and they want consumer-like experience. So I think the consumerization of work and the fact that most organizations know that to compete in the war for talent, they need to have this people power approach and treat people like the best customers and give them consumer-like experiences. That is a reality, even though it is also true that like everything, the changes happen, start at the far right of the normal distribution of the bell curve. So today it is, of course, the qualified and skilled elite of knowledge workers in the world and a small proportion of that that are highly skilled and they're in certain sectors that are demanding this, you know? So even at the beginning of this pandemic, when Facebook and Google and the big tech companies started to almost virtue signal or advertise like, oh, we're going to let people work from wherever they want until 2023, you're like, that's odd. Like, first, why weren't they doing it before? And then what, are you, what, what they're trying to tell us is that if you work here, we're going to treat you like a VIP employee. And that hasn't gone away. And that's why I think now that kind of moves to the big bulk of distribution and more people demand after having experienced this flexibility, they don't want to lose it. And I think, you know, hybrid has become a very encompassing and large and obviously almost squiggly term, right, if you like. But actually, if you think about it from the perspective of flexibility and alternating between modes of working, most organizations in the knowledge economy have been hybrid, right? Because very few have been totally rigid, even pre-COVID, and very few have been totally do whatever you want and totally virtual. So I think what we're seeing now is that there is pressure to become more flexible in the opportunities and the ways of working that you offer to your employees. And if you revert to what you were before or are less flexible, you're going to suffer because people are going to look for employers that give them more choices. So just like before you will compete, people, organizations will compete on salary, titles, prestige. Yeah, we have a sushi bar or somebody will do your laundry or we have scooters that can go from, oh, we'll find you, you know, a date and a husband and a wife. Now it's like you can work from wherever you want. So I feel like the conversation about hybrid and the shift to being more flexible, more hybrid will, like it or not, employers be thrust upon them by this increasing kind of people power. At probably quite an individual level, like I feel like everybody might want to fight for the flexibility that they feel like they've created for themselves. As organisations and managers approach conversations about what does hybrid working look like here and how do we make this team work here, what do you think are some of the watchouts as they start having those conversations and putting those inevitable processes and rules and frameworks in place? 
Yeah. So generally, I'm actually much more interested in the problems than the solutions and the watchouts than how to fix things. But on this occasion, I think, you know, we can just go directly to what should be done. And I think first, having the humility and the curious mindset to understand that very few things will work from the very beginning. It's about trial and error, experimenting. And, you know, that's really important. And that's really, I think, where most organizations should be today when they truly want to be data-driven. It's like, put something in place and evaluate, you know, does engagement goes up, does productivity goes up, do people, with that, you know, asking people what they want to do and personalizing that as much as possible, which I think should be done at the level of the manager. So yes, there can be organizational-wide policies, but I think ultimately you have to trust managers to, you have to empower them to manage their teams, you know? So when companies say everyone will do that, it's a problem for hybrid because even before COVID, if you were a sales or business development person and you're in the office, you're probably wasting your time at the time when your job was to take people out for lunch and drinks and dinner. Now, you know, not so much, although it's going to revert that, right? We're not, no doubt. Whereas if you were in, I don't know, you know, health and safety or admin or an admin person or a secretary, you have to be in the office. So you have to personalize and you can only personalize at the level of managers. The third one I would say is to remember, this is my last point, that people always need some structure. I don't know, you know, how it was in your school or where you were to school, but I remember I grew up in Argentina and I was, I went to a school, it was a German school for no reason, but you know, it was kind of very strict. It was unusual in Argentina, even if you were in a private school, that you had to wear a uniform. It was quite interesting because when students were sent from Germany, they were used to the German system and they wore no uniform, but everyone that was enrolled there had to wear uniform, right? And of course, then that's a great opportunity to rebel. And I was always not wearing the right things. Dress code, even if you take that little example of life, which goes from school to work, it's problematic for most people if you tell them either at school or at work, dress appropriately or dress in a way you like, because there is no structure. And then you have to think, and then actually you can't deviate from norms even if you want to. And, you know, in the more recent phase of the pandemic, we've heard when people were talking about what hybrid policies are, I think it was GM, General Motors, say, our policies work appropriately. It sounds great. It's like, wow, I can just, you know, it's like when Netflix says, oh, treat people like adults. And yeah, they are adults, but they want structure. So it's much better if you have certain rules and say, you got to be in twice a week or you got to be in three times a week because we want to see you and we don't want you to disappear. You got to live within 60 miles of the office or whatever that is. You should ideally come in when other people in your team are in, not when you want to watch Netflix and no one is in. And so, you know, I'm making these rules up. But what I'm trying to say is that people want some structure, even if it is like if it was a just score, you have the basic structure and then you can improvise without that or find some flexibility. Because if you don't give people any structure or any idea of what your philosophy is and what your rules are and why you want them to be in, they have to spend a lot of time trying to work it out. And then it kind of uh, increases the risk of perceptions of unfairness, inequity, or, you know, why is X person doing that and not this and so on. And then, of course, the fourth, I return to the very first point I said is like really improve your ability to evaluate output, 
performance and what people are contributing. Don't create a two-tiered system whereby there is an implicit reward for people to be in and you're actually punishing people for not being in, even if you say, yeah, it doesn't matter where you are. So I'd love to come back to two of those points, actually. The first on that kind of code of work, that idea of there being some sort of rules for engagement, perhaps at a team level. How important do you think it is that that code of work, those rules are co-created by the team versus imposed by the manager? I think it's ideal if they can be co-created. And I think, you know, ultimately there has to be someone making the decision. And I think a manager is always a manager. At the end of the day, you know, if I decide on your salary, your promotion, and I can get you fired or not, I'm the boss. So I've always been skeptical of the utopian view that it's holacracy and everyone, you know, and, and I like, I think it's actually Slavoj Žižek that made this point that Silicon Valley has basically made power very informal. So your boss is wearing a hoodie and they look very young and informal. And it's like, hey, you know, what did you do last night? But that's the worst form of domination because you can be fooled into thinking that this is a friend and they're actually, you know, in charge. So, so sometimes, you know, I think in the liberal and free world, it's very hard to actually see power because we try to kind of diffuse it or mask it, right? Having said that, a good manager who will still set the rules creates psychological safety in their teams and learns from their direct reports and understands, Amy Edmondson makes this point, that in the knowledge economy, knowledge is distributed and it's your ability to harness and crowdsource it from your teams primarily that makes you an effective leader and makes that team effective. So I think it is absolutely sensible for a boss to consult people and to agree on what the team rules are and also what the individual rules are. And if I'm a manager, I would say, look, um, let's understand that Helen, because of her situation, will only be coming a couple of months a week. But, you know, while you're not seeing her, she's working on this and this and that. And please always zoom in when you're meeting in person, etc. So those are ground rules that allow for personalization. And I think everyone in the team needs to understand what each and one of the team members' position and situation is. And you have to give people the opportunity to change it if they don't like it, if you don't agree with it, because you say, oh, why should I come in just because uh, I don't have kids? I still prefer to be at home. It's like, well, unfortunately, that's not an argument. We need to have as many people as possible in, and I need you to be in because of this contribution, you know? And if we can test and actually we see that it makes no difference having no one in for that, then let's evaluate that for a little time and then, you know, we can recalibrate. I really like the point of bringing um, psychological safety in. Again, it's something that we talk about and Amy's been on the podcast, so I'll link to it on the pod sheet for everyone that's listening to re-listen to that conversation with Amy. But I think one of the dimensions that she talks about is the importance of tough conversations. And I think you need a team to have tough conversations. To your point, <laughs> this is not going to be right first time and it's going to need to keep changing. And so what's working, what's what not working, what do we need to adapt and adjust? As a regular conversation in a team, I think needs to be the ongoing reality of how that team will connect and evolve together. Definitely. Speak up. You know, we're dealing now. This is basically, it's a new challenge or a new phase for our teams, right? Great if we were resilient and productive during COVID. And, you know, now next phase, still somewhat unpredictable and unknown, but we got to see what we return to and how we construct the new normalcy or the next phase. 
By the way, here are the company rules. Personally, I don't agree with this, but I think this is great. But anyway, we have to adhere. Here, we have some freedom. What do you think? What do you want to do? Often people think of, you know, how managers will look to or evaluate employees who don't want to return. But I was reading, I think a few days ago, my colleague and friend Dory Clark wrote an HBR piece on how you as a manager are evaluated by us if you don't want to come, which is interesting, right? Because I know a lot of bosses that not when they are executives, in which case they want to be back in the office and away from their families, and probably they're expelled by their families to be in the office. But actually, a lot of mid-level managers are like, you know what, I don't want to be in, and I never really liked it, and I'm productive here. If my team wants to be in, that's fine, but that's like a very counterintuitive way of thinking about it, right? The boss is at home, and the team is there. And why shouldn't it work, you know? Because at the end of the day, as a boss, you shouldn't micromanage. You should give people the tools, the resources, and the directive and feedback to do their work. Teams can function perfectly well, you know, like that. So I think we're going to work it out, and every team needs to work it out. And even if it's not totally crowdsourced or a bottom-up approach, I think it has to be an element of collective decision-making. One of the things I find concerning, intriguing, I don't know, I don't know what it is quite yet, but the role of the manager. So in ladder-like careers, becoming a manager was sort of like an obvious step to success. You know, your team's got bigger and you got more senior and your job title reflected that, tick that box. And then I think the squigglier careers get and the more hybrid working introduces complexities. I think the role of the manager is now very different and actually quite challenging. And I don't think it's the right job for everybody because, you know, things that we're talking about, creating a culture of psychological safety, personalising your approach to your people, continually adapting to the world of work. That's really hard. And I think you have to really want to develop those skills and be that kind of manager for that to be the right opportunity for you and your development. I think it's a very different job than it used to be. Yeah, I think you're right. So if you look at the very old traditional model, you can go to any very hierarchical organization. I mean, let's take, you know, the army or the military. And it's very clear, right? You start and then you have a path and it's rank and it's seniority and the criteria are very clear. And then if you're ambitious, you want to get as far as you can. And the rules are there. When you start shifting to more modern organizations, things become generally flatter and then more flexible and you have different career development paths. And actually people are encouraged to rotate through functions and business and PL and get different experiences. And I think the next phase of that is what you write about and talk about, which is what if actually you want to change or pivot completely and try something else, you know? And I think at the individual level, we're much better now at not seeing linear destinations and pathways and at understanding that who cares about being a boss if it means I have to manage more people and actually I don't enjoy that and maybe I'm stressed and I have a worse work-life balance or life in general and actually I don't gain and I don't develop and blah 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 you know so titles have been devaluated because there are other things we value more freedom growth flexibility uh, fun, money, experience, etc. However, at the organizational level, this still hasn't changed. You know, I work with a lot of organizations helping them on the high potential identification. And it's quite interesting because with the exception of some very niche technical jobs or roles, high potential is always potential for leadership and it's quantified in terms of how many people you manage. And there's a fundamental flaw 
to this logic, why would you take someone who has done a great job as an individual contributor and your reward is to punish them by making them manage a team of 15? And if they do that well, a team of 30. And if they do that well, for And I think organizations or smart HR people know this, but then they're saying, what is the developmental path or the destination for someone who is really good on strategy or thinking or solving problems and is a key role and key player, but we can't give him a bigger title or a bigger salary if they're not managing this budget or these people. And I think it will change, but it needs to align more with the kind of squiggly approach or multi-layered approach to how we reward talent and performance. I couldn't agree more and I'm very glad that you are on the case. <laughs> I will and I will stalk your work whenever it is published. We have um, something which we think of as the squiggly career readiness scale. So we often talk to organizations about where they are on the scale and some of those elements play into, you know, how much are people able to squiggle and stay and develop in different directions around here and some of those kind of old notions of that's what high potential means also kind of goes against that. I have one other area I'd really like to talk to you about, and particularly because it's come up on lots of the questions people wanted to me to raise with you, which is about this idea of proximity bias. So the risk that progression in our organisation, and that you know might not just be equaling promotion, but you know opportunities to develop, let's call it that, that that will be limited to those visible people that are showing up and that there'll be almost like a progression penalty for people that choose to retain some of that flexibility that they've had. I wondered what you thought, whether you thought that was a reality and whether you thought there was anything individuals and organisations should be doing to respond to the risk. Yeah, so again, uncharacteristically, I'll start with a solution. But I think the most important thing is that they can measure this impact, right? And I'll give you a really super simple example. Every large organisation can take a measure, a diagnostic measure of... For instance, I'm just going to give one example, right? How many men and how many women return to the office? Or if you want to be more granular, the percentage of time that men are in and the percentage of time women are in, even though we're saying the policy is the same. And then they can correlate percentage of being in with performance, bonus, etc. And also break it down by gender or see whether there is an increase or stability for one sex or the other. That's a really simple analysis, right? And so if you want to have fairness and you don't want to have a two-tier system, and I only said gender, but of course it's age, social class, ethnicity, any, any, any group. But the most important thing is that you can easily measure, and this is a great example of analytics in action, because you can see what's happening beyond the anecdotal, right? You can track and measure, and if you see inequality or inequality rising, then if you want to address it, you can, you know, because basically this simple analysis can tell you, actually, the more you're in, the more you earn or the better you're evaluated. And then we can discuss, well, why is it that maybe it is the best people that happen to be in and it's not causal, but at least you can detect this and you can detect changes. Now, on the, on the first part of the question, unfortunately, this proximal or proximity bias or presentism, it's real. I think even if you're an open-minded, well-being, modern, evidence-based manager or boss, you probably can't control it, you know, because there's something inherently human to evaluating 
we don't just see people in two dimensions and over Zoom. We value being with others. And I think even if you're not thinking it, you're probably unconsciously influenced. There's something in your brain that said, well, if these people are in and they spend time with me, maybe they like me more, maybe they value me more, maybe they're more engaged. And of course, the representative bias of things that are fresh in your mind get prioritized over the rest. Everyone is there, right? If I'm asked today, who in your team would you promote to this role? And I try to engage in introspection, I will be influenced by the people I dealt with. And by the way, this translates to the digital world as well, because if you're emailing me every day or you're on WhatsApp, etc., you're being present. So unfortunately, that's real. And of course, you know, power or one of the aspects or facets and really reasons for power is that it still enables people to act on the basis of their personal or subjective preferences, you know? And bureaucracy rules and processes try to sanitize and sterilize that subjective power. If you want a big example, I can no longer, in a modern organization in the developed world, I cannot longer go for a drink or a coffee with someone and say, I'm going to hire this person because I really like them. Or they're my cousin or my nephew, you know, that doesn't go because we've been trying to kind of eliminate or reduce nepotism and unfairness and make marriage. But we are also not at the level that your potential and your performance and your merit is objectively evaluated and you completely eliminate subjectivity. And, you know, I'll give you a a very good example. If you fast forward five or 10 years in time, to the point that we have, I don't know, artificial intelligence developed in an ethical way and they can really kind of give you a score for someone's job fit, etc. And I am the boss and I interview that person and I really dislike them. I want to see us get to that stage. <laughs> because, and we say, okay, cognitive diversity, inclusivity, belonging... I don't think any human with power wants to be forced to work with someone they don't like. We've been trying to kind of enable more situations where that happens, because if you're telling people, hey, you know, be open-minded, it's not just about culture fit, you have to have diversity, maybe charisma isn't as important, all the things that I always write about, but it's very utopian to get to a point where these factors are negligent. Why? Because we're not robots, (laughs) you know? And I can have a conversation with you and I really like you and maybe that would actually enhance our collaboration. But some of that might be based on our bias and maybe some of that is wrong. I said, you know, in the AI world, it's equivalent of asking algorithms on Netflix or Spotify to tell you, listen to this song because you're too white in your musical preferences and you're too middle-aged or you're too middle-class and you have to change your taste. No one wants to do that. I mean, Netflix and Spotify would collapse if the algorithms were designed to make us more open-minded. It's so interesting that you mentioned kind of utopia because actually as we've been talking, I've been thinking about, gosh, getting hybrid working right is like some kind of unrealistic nirvana state. And and when we first started talking, that was my question. It was like, what's the benefit of getting this right? And I think it was the wrong question because I think there is no right because there may, there may be right for right now, maybe, but to your point, it's very hard. That bias, that power, the individualization of work, like it's very, very hard to get it right, even right now. And so I think it's maybe more the aim should not be some nirvana state of work because 
work is hard and people are different and everything is changing. And maybe it's more just about reflecting on the risk of getting it wrong. You know, the aspiration is not to have some kind of perfect solution for work, but it's to to recognise that we've got to work towards something better because if we don't, people will leave and they are more able to leave now than they perhaps ever have been. And they have more power than they have had before that might compel them to do that. Yeah, exactly. Much like now, you know, you have the power to raise the fact that your boss doesn't listen to you or, you know, and people have the power and it will continue to increase to actually evaluate their managers, right? In the old days, a boss is looking over your shoulder and telling you, do this, do that, and they decide. Now, I mean, we will get to a point where actually employees decide on whether the boss is doing a good job or not, because we know that their performance, their engagement determines that. But I think, you know, you made me think of something, maybe at the end of the day, the fundamental issue is what problem you're trying to solve, or if you want to use, you know, kind of modern engineering or human resources, what are you trying to optimize for? And I think that's the more important philosophical discussion because hybrid is an approach, it's a philosophy, and it's a mode for something. It's a medium for something. And I think, you know, where we are today is quite interesting because the best employers and most organizations often pretend or signal or posture this philosophy that they are really interested in optimizing for wellness, well-being, engaging, thriving, whatever. But you don't have to be overly cynical to understand that they want these things because that boosts performance. And so even with the rise now on wellness and happiness, etc., you know, for-profit corporations are not in the business of making people happy. And they shouldn't be either. But I think their assumption is that if you are happier working here, you'll be more productive. If that is the goal, then fine. Uh, But sometimes the means to get there can get a little bit dirty or noisy or contaminated. And so, for example, I think today what you see in terms of hybrid working claims is influenced by the fear that if we don't pretend to be flexible, people will go somewhere else. And maybe they're wrong because maybe too much flexibility is not good or... So it depends what you're optimizing for. And I think it seems like this hybrid kind of age is highlighting a potential difference or decoupling of where you are happier and where you feel kind of more creative and flexible and all of that and where you are more productive. And if that is the case, and I think that's, you know, when you see Jamie Diamond and Goldman Sachs saying, no, we want people back in the office, this no-nonsense approach is because they're saying, we care about making money, and you need to be making money, and this is where you can make us money. And that seems brutal, but then if they're paying a lot, people will still go there. And on the other hand, maybe if they say, well, come and be wherever you want, but if employees at the end of the day, find that they're not being stretched or they're not enjoying or leveraging the power of in-person meetings. And I'm not saying there is, but maybe for some people there is some value. Then you could be optimizing for where you are more comfortable, but maybe that's not the best career stretch, you know? And so I think, you know, ultimately is that, and maybe if you want to recover or kind of regain some of the more humanistic approaches to work, maybe we should not obsess so much for where people are most productive and 
performing because there has to be a balance, you know? And maybe it's disadvantageous to, even when you're saying, okay, we're going to be hybrid and we're going to see if during COVID, this was the conversation at the beginning. Okay, we measure teams and they're equally productive when they're not here. I mean, people were dying and they were very anxious and stressed and you're still honestly worried about productivity or assuming that this is an experiment where the only thing that changed is whether people are in front of their computers or in the office. No, they were in their homes, they were with their kids, friends were dying, everyone was getting sick. We knew that we could take our laptops home and that's like the office. So it's everything else that changes, but with it, the main kind of moral ask for organizations is to define what they believe in and what the priority is. And I think that has to have certain risks. And that risk might be not to care so much about short-term productivity because you want to connect with people and gain some loyalty and trust. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for listening to today's episode on hybrid work. Hope you found it interesting. Would love your feedback if you have any. As I said at the start, you can just email us. We're just Helen and Sarah at squigglycareers.com. Let us know what you liked about this. Or you can send us a message on Instagram. We're just at amazingifthere. If you'd like to find out more about Thomas's work or maybe watch some of those TED Talks that I mentioned in the introduction, you can just go to Dr. Thomas, that's D-R-T-O-M-A-S dot com and you'll be able to see all of his work there and the details of all of his books as well. So thank you again for listening and Sarah and I will be back together next week to speak to you. Bye everyone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 